Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is where we bring together journalists from throughout the East End, award-winning journalists, that is, uh, because they all are. We got a lot of award-winning folks out here, no question. Uh, and uh, we get a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the websites 27East.com and SagHarborExpress.com. With me is my co-host, Bill Sutton, who is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Good, Good morning. Good today. We have Denise Civiletti, who is the editor of Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Hi there, how are you? We have Michael Mackey, who is the Long Island Morning Edition local news host for WLIWFM. Hey, Michael, thanks for uh, letting us tread your turf today. Good morning, folks, and welcome. <laughs> Good to have you. And Brianne Letta, who is a staff writer at the uh, Times Review Media Group. Hey, Brianne, how you doing this morning? Good, how about you? Good, good to have you here. So um, let's talk about uh, the most recent development this week is uh, in the governor's race for New York. Um, Michael, the, uh, the Democratic convention was held in the last couple of days and uh, New York has a, has a first, right? New York has the first major candidate in the state of, to be female. She is the first female governor and Governor Kathy Hochul has now been nominated by her party by an 86% vote at yesterday's convention in Manhattan mm. to be the Democratic Party candidate. That doesn't mean she will certainly be the candidate. There could possibly be a primary where uh, Jamani Williams and uh, Representative Tom Swazi would oppose her if they're able to secure 15,000 signatures apiece. So that's the situation. It's a a, a rather dramatic success story for Governor Hochul. Uh, Previous Governor Cuomo had planned to not have her on his ticket this year and uh, pick a different uh, lieutenant governor to run with him. But uh, there's a there's Governor Hochul on top and she's uh, rather popular these days, it appears. And she is uh, popular also with the uh, the establishment, the Democratic Party, and whether she's able to secure the the support of the uh, more left-wing progressives in the, the party is yet to be determined. And she's opposed uh, by a Republican candidate who's also yet to be determined, but it appears it's going to be our own East End Congressman Lee Zeldin. So there's a lot going on there. And since football season's over, the political uh, play is rather <laughs> to watch. Of course, a lot more at stake here. We have to we have to set the odds on something, right? Um, you you mentioned it. It's a real reversal of fortune for um, Kathy Hochul. She was, I would venture to say, two years ago, a lot of folks probably would have had trouble coming up with her name. And, and now governor she, of New York, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even as lieutenant governor, I don't know that a lot of people would have been able to identify her. And and she was very clearly, I think it's fair to say, kept in the shadows by uh, Governor Cuomo. She, I, I think, I, he may have seen. Uh, that, that she had some ability uh, to take the spotlight away from him. And, and that might have been part of what it was. Um, so do we think there's any legitimate chance that one of the other candidates, Tom Swazi or, or Jonte Williams, will, will mount? Uh, first of all, will they mount a campaign uh, to try and take the nomination away when you consider how overwhelming the support is for Kathy Hochul? And do you think there's any chance of success on that one? It doesn't appear so. I do wonder why is Swazi hanging in there? He's sort of a a male reflection of Governor Hochul. What does he have to gain? What makes him think that 
in her incumbent position that she can be overtaken by him? What does he have to offer that's so different and uh, and and so superior to what she appears to be providing? Jamani Williams is a a, a, a leftist a progressive, so he offers something much different. And if he gets his fifteen thousand uh, signatures signed and is in and creates a primary. And in Swazi's in the primary, too, it all could get divided. But it appears that Governor Hochul is, is almost certainly going to be the Democratic Party candidate this November. So and uh, it's a terrific success story. The New York Times had a big story on her and where she came from. Apparently, while she was lieutenant governor, she wasn't dormant. She was out meeting people, making connections mm. and uh, and everybody quite impressed uh, by her presence. And I've heard you folks over the years complain about the distance you felt between the governor of New York State, Cuomo, and uh, and the media. And she seems to be a little, a lot more effective in uh, communicating with the media and uh, with uh, the politicians <laughs> in Albany. Yeah, a little Weird. little story, little story okay. here. There, there was a, a media uh, email line. Uh, throughout the Cuomo campaign and during his time in office, it became sort of a side venture for me to occasionally send an email to that to that line just to say, hello, is there anybody out there? Like, will anybody ever answer one of my emails? And, and I literally would send emails saying that never got a reply. And it's funny when Governor Hochul took over about a week later, I said, hey, I'm just checking in on this again to see if any within 15 minutes, I got a reply. Um, and we have actually had contact with the governor's office. Praise, praise the Lord. We've been able to actually talk to people from the governor's office for the first time in my memory in our attempts to do that. So, yeah, I just backing that up, Michael, I think there has been. Same. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, more, more yeah we get answers to questions. It's amazing. <laughs> Denise, do you do you think Tom Swazi? Now, Tom Swazi in the past, and he's made this point that he's been discouraged to run for um, county executive. He was discouraged to run for Congress. He won both of those uh, both, mm. both of those positions. I'm not sure he's going to go away um, all that uh, easily. And I wonder, you know, whether or not he might pose a real challenge to, to Hochul, at least a, a thorn in his side through the uh, through the primary season. I, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's I. I think he, certainly he's serious. And it seems to me just from reading his press releases that he is trying to position himself as a more centrist candidate right. than Hochul. Like, you know, it's almost like some of his uh, points, talking points and, and the things that he says in his press releases are kind of a toned down version of the things we're hearing from Lee Zeldin. You know, um, I don't think he's he's like trying to say that she is you know, the progressive wing of the party, he's the centrist wing and he has a better shot to, you know, battle, do battle with um, the, the, you know, the right, the hard right kind of Republican candidate, if I may refer to him that way. Um, so he's, I don't know. I don't. He's, he's very critical of, of the governor. And, and I, yeah. even, even even in, in an article I read the, this morning, I mean, he was just, um, you know, even though she had uh, so so she removed the uh, the accessory housing thing from her from her budget. And, and, and he had been critical of that. And, and even in in, uh, in an article this morning, he he was 
um, you know, agreeing that 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 it was a bad idea. But I said, you know, he was he made a point of saying, well, she should have never introduced it in the first place. So I, I don't think he's going away anytime soon. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and he certainly got has has had a lot of support, at least, you know, at least out here on, on Long Island and, you know, big population area and, and you know, in, in the city. And, you know, this could be a battle between, you know, between upstate and and downstate as state politics often are, I think he's, he's not going anywhere soon. Brianna was pretty good at, at, at connecting with us on Long Island, though. She was just in. Oh, yeah, stuff. absolutely. She makes that a point a- of not feeling like she's an upstate uh, political. She's she's serving the state. I don't, sure. I, I, I don't see what how Swazi um, I don't see what he personally thinks he will gain from this uh, this political the, the desire. I don't I don't see the, I don't see his end game. That doesn't make mm. sense. Brian Letta, I, yeah. I was actually going to make that exact point that Michael just made that that we have seen the governor on uh, on the East End. Uh, yeah. I think more more than we saw the governor Cuomo was a fan of the East End and he spent a lot of time out here. His brother lives out here and he would come out to fish and boat and do things like that. But um, Brian Letta, we we've, we've actually had the governor here this past week uh, for the groundbreaking for the wind farm project. That makes a difference, right? I mean, you know, when, when the governor is actually making appearances locally, uh, I, I think that's going to help her on Long Island when it comes time for, for the votes to be cast. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's not like she just started showing up on Long Island now that she's interested in running for governor. She's been she's been around. I've been to a few press conferences with her even before she was um, before this campaign a few years ago when I was interning at WSHU. I've gone to press conferences where she's on Long Island. So I think that it matters that she's trying to speak with local um, lawmakers, with people who who work and, you know, um, live on Long Island. And Brianne, I wonder if the mask issue uh, is going to be a big one. Um, certainly, um, Lee Zeldin, as we mentioned, he's the presumptive candidate on the Republican side. Uh, their their uh, convention, by the way, is coming up at the end of February, uh, February, March, and it's in, it's actually in Nassau County. Um, and he's expected to be to get the nomination for governor there. He has overwhelming support across the state. Um, he's made a big issue of the governor and the way she's dealt with the mask mandate. And so has Tom Swazi. He's brought that up as well. I wonder if that's going to dog her uh, in this campaign. And I wonder if it has any traction um, with voters in New York State. I mean, that's a good question. Um, personally, I think there are bigger issues that people are dealing with right now. And there are bigger issues on the table and like that the state is dealing with. Um, and I would argue that she wasn't really totally acting out of lines with you know CDC recommendations and with what other democratic governors were doing across the country. So I, I don't think that the mask mandates are gonna be an issue in her campaign. Yeah, Michael, one of, one of the folks in our newsroom made the point that um, Lee Zeldin has focused really hard on the governor and her response to the, to the pandemic. If, big if, but if the pandemic wanes later this year, that, that kind of pulls a, a plank right out of, from under um, Lee Zeldin, right? It's, it, I mean, it doesn't become nearly the, the, the powerful political statement that it might seem to be right now. I feel the same way. It's one less contentious issue for him to address. And it does appear like the, uh, the mask mandate issue will be gone long before November. 
We, we were talking earlier uh, off air about why is Zeldin running? He's a, a congressman, the only Republican uh, Jewish congressman in the House of Representatives. He gets a lot of airtime on Fox. Occasionally, he's even on the, uh, the CNN. He's sort of in a unique position there. So why would he run for governor where, in a blue state where it appears that he will very well uh, lose? Well, redistricting then uh, lit a bulb in my head. I realized that he foresaw redistricting, that running again in the first congressional district as it's reconfigured isn't a sure win. And by running for governor, he almost has nothing to lose. If he runs for governor and, and loses to Governor Hochul, whoever the Democratic candidate is, well, it's a blue state. What chance did he really have? If he makes it close and it's competitive, it's a rather gallant attempt in a blue state to uh, defeat the, the liberals and the progressives and the woke people. And if he pulled the Pataki and actually won the gubernatorial race in New York this year, he would be a superstar. He'd be a, yeah. a superhero. Imagine a presidential candidate someday who could uh, claim uh, New York as, as one of his uh, electoral voting states. So it's a, it's a special moment for Lee Zeldin, actually. And he gets a fair amount of publicity and support from the Republican Party, including a uh, Deep Pockets is a fundraiser for him uh, next Wednesday in Nassau County, where Vice President Pence is appearing and $25,000 uh, an individual you can attend. Or there's one in, on uh, April 1st in Mar-a-Lago, where President Trump might appear, and that's $25,000 per couple. So Zeldin's out there uh, garnering uh, big bucks to run against a Democratic candidate, but Governor Hochul has uh, got a war chest, too. So that'll be a high-profile race, not only for us on Long Island, but throughout the country. Denise, I would I, just like to add, if I can, yeah. that, that like, I, first of all, I would say don't count the don't count the virus out. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a lot of things from this virus. And hmm. I mean, there may be another variant, another surge, another, uh, you know, by in the fall again. So that may heat up that whole discussion and freedom, et cetera. And um, don't count out the power of the great propaganda machine that we've seen over and over again, that I would say uh, Congressman is, you know, entrenched in. Um, I mean, you know, if if it's not masks, uh, it, there'll be something else. There'll be some other, you know, thing. And the culture um, wars. That, yeah, I mean, you know, identity politics and, you know, grievance and, you know, as as Brianna, Brianne, sorry, noted before, um, you know, the, the masks weren't that significant, you would think. But that really doesn't matter in the culture wars. Right. You know? yes, the, the masks are such a hot button issue. And, you know, and, and yeah, once the, the mandate goes away, maybe maybe less so. But look, there's going to be a, a he's, he's going to pull back uh, on a lot of video footage and he's going to you know talk about how, you know, Cuomo and he attacked Cuomo from from day one, how, how Cuomo set the course for for Hochul and, and how they destroyed the economy and, you know, with their mandates and and this and that. And that's just going to play. You know, it, it won't be that far removed, even if there's no mandate at, at the time. Um, looking back at and, and, and speculating on on how the you know, how the pandemic was handled by, you know, by by Cuomo Hochul and we'll combine the two. Um, because that's how it'll it'll play out during the campaign, um, you, you know, and, and that's just that's so, so emotionally charged right now and, and so, so divisive. 
um, where, where, you know, you've, you, it's, it's, it's such a red blue issue and, and let's not count out all the, you know, all the, all the, all the red, uh, you know, the red votes, um, you know, upstate Western New York, central New York. Um, I mean, New York is a blue state because of, of New York city yes. and, and, and Long Island. Yeah. I mean, but the rest of it, um, you know, we, we saw, we saw, you know, five years ago, six years ago, people, people come out of the, the woodwork when, when they're charged up enough. Let me push back against that, though, Bill. I, I think that that this idea and and Michael, I think, really summed it up very well. Um, but I think the idea of floating George Pataki, that he was the last Republican governor, I think that's that's a red herring because George Pataki was a very different candidate from Lee Zeldin. Lee Zeldin in 2015, 2016, you got to remember, he started in the Tea Party and he pushed in with uh, President Trump in 2015, 2016, and he went all in. And I don't know that he necessarily was a big supporter of uh, President Trump in the beginning, but he has become one of his most loyal, um, you know, followers. Let's let's just call it what it is. And um, you're seeing that now he's still got some support uh, from him. And I feel like he is too hampered by that to really be a serious is candidate he, at the is state he, Is he hampered by that or or, 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 helped, is, by that. or, or yeah. helped by that? I mean, I mean, do you really forget, think in New York forget State, though, is, there's enough votes uh, what, on the Trump side? Well, don't forget, this is going to be a midterm election and it's going to be a vote on Biden, who's who's losing popularity right now because of inflation and the economy um, and because the pandemic hasn't gone away. And you're going to have you're going to have all those all those Republican voters that supported Trump. Um, you know, the first time around, they're going to come out as as anti Biden votes because you know he's not the real duly elected president. I don't know. If you're it's going to be about who's ener- who's energized, <laughs> what voting block is energized, exactly. and I think that's your point, Bill. And I think that you know, to say oh they'll never overcome New York City's blue vote, well it depends on turnout. Yeah, exactly. It really does. You know? The left leaning Democrats feel alienated by Governor Hochul. She's just another establishment figure and they don't turn out. And uh, Zeldin gets out the uh, everybody on, 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 on the far right and and, uh, and gets enough of the people that are on the fence. It is possible he could possibly win. I mean, and Long Island, by the way, is it all blue? There's a there's no, lots of red on Long Island. It's it a, segregated, but it's uh, it's it's red and blue. Brian, go ahead. There's a lot of red, but I, I would argue that um, Trump lost. I think that Trump lost the vote of the moderate Republican voter in the last election. And I think that's part of what made a difference in the election. And I think that Lee Zeldin throwing his hat in with Trump um, could cost him the vote of a moderate Republican. Um, plus, I don't think that the fact that Zeldin has associated himself with Trump and the fact that uh, Kathy Hochul is blue. Uh, she hasn't necessarily thrown um, her hat in, I would say, with with Biden. She's just in the same political party. So I'm not sure that it's it, she's equatable with, with Biden's election. I, 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 I agree with you. But but, it, you know, to, to to Denise's point, it's about turnout. And if you have a lot of people turning out because they're dissatisfied with with the Biden administration, um, and, and, you know, and want to come out and, and turn Congress around, then that has an effect on the gubernatorial race as, as well. And it's just who shows up. 
and it's a midterm election, the, the Republicans are going to be, you know, be, you know, get out the vote to, you know, to try to gain control of the House and the Senate again. And those voters that come out for that, who are they going to vote for? They're not going to vote for Hochul. Um, they're going to vote for Zeldin. I will say this as we get into the gubernatorial race, um, you know, U.S. Representative Lee Zeldin's done a wonderful job of shutting out the local media in asking about January 6th in particular and in exploring some of these connections that he has to Trump and his actions on January 6th. I, I, just to clarify, he has never addressed any of that publicly, and he's never been willing to sit down with any of us in his first district media group to have a conversation about that. Uh, he's done a wonderful job. I tip my hat to him of completely blocking us out. Somebody has to ask those questions. And I think as we start the, the race for governor, I, I think it needs to pull into the, to the spotlight. Someone at the state level needs to ask him those tough questions. He's able to block us out, but I hope you know the New York Times, uh, Newsday, some of the other folks are able to, to press him and to try and get some real answers uh, about his well, actions on January 6th. And, and well, sooner or later, there'll be a debate, actually, between the debate stage, and, yeah, and, and she'll ask the questions. Well, okay. we'll see how that plays out. I think I, I don't think he'll be able to duck it for much longer. And I, I, I think it's a shame he's been able to duck it this long. But, uh, you know, when someone shuts down on you, they shut down on you. And there's not much you can do. Uh, Governor, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> maybe a little anticipatory there. Uh, Representative Zeldin doesn't talk to us at all anymore after January 6th. So uh, that's been a frustrating thing for us. Um, so uh, we'll see how it plays out. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. With us today, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Michael Mackey from right here at WLIWFM, and Brianne Letta from the Times Review Media Group. Brianne, let's stay with the state level. Um, there was a, a big development this week. Um, there was an accessory housing proposal at the state level that ruffled some feathers locally, because I think this was a measure that might make some sense in some communities, but it would be a significant change here, um, no question. And a lot of people were looking very closely at it. The gov Governor Hope will actually pulled that this week, didn't she? Yeah, she pulled it last night, actually. Um, which that is, would be uh, Thursday night, right? Thursday night, yeah. So I was um, actually covering when when that when Newsday broke that story. I was covering Greenport uh, Village Hall meeting at the time, and they were actually in the middle of discussing the ADU uh, proposal and the governor's um, and the proposal to widely legalize accessory dwelling units across the state. Um, Can you explain what the proposal sort of was in broad strokes? Just what the idea was. Sure. So. Um, in her state of state book, she outlined a proposal to require local municipalities to allow at least one ADU or accessory dwelling unit, which could include backyard cottages, attics, garages, basements, um, on owner-occupied residentially zoned lots. Um, every one of them. What? Every one of them. Every every uh, property with a single-family house on it would have the the, the towns would have to allow them to put a, a second residence on those. Yeah, they could choose to add one accessory dwelling unit, at least if they if they chose to, uh, depending on local law. Okay, um, And that's been so that was pulled that that did have some support, I think, in Albany. But I know Fred Thiel had uh, been a little concerned about it. And uh, it, as I said, there were some real critics of that plan, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the on the East End, uh, Anthony Palumbo spoke out against it. Jody Giglio spoke out against it. Fred Hill spoke out against it. Um, and even uh, Julia Robbins in Greenport, a Greenport Village Board trustee, said she supports um, legalizing ADUs in concept, but she understands the local opposition to the law. Um, and, and a lot of the concerns that I heard largely focused on the loss of local uh, control over that legislation and about the risk of overdevelopment and increasing density on uh, on. Yeah, especially especially in communities that have really been fighting density over over the last 20 years. But it has to be said, these are communities that are considering measures. East Hampton, for instance, East Hampton Town, I know, enacted a measure where they began to allow more accessory uh, uses in an effort to try and create some affordable housing. The problem there is I don't think there were that many takers um, because it's expensive to add an apartment onto your house or, or to build a, a cottage in your backyard. South Southampton Town did too. I mean, early on in, in Jay Schneiderman's administration, he he um, changed the law to to loosen some of the restrictions on on accessory apartments. Um, although the problem with that was trying to decide what areas of the town to allow those in, um, and it it seemed like it was the more um, more more dense areas already. Um, bypassing some of the, or, or, or he was trying to push them toward toward the less dense areas, but those are the the more wealthier areas that didn't want, um, you know, affordable housing in, in their neighborhoods necessarily. Um, I thought it was really interesting the governor's proposal. She's just recognizing this need for more affordable housing statewide. I mean, we talk about it as as an issue, particularly on the South Fork. I, I know Riverhead's a little different. Um, Denise, but we we talk about it as as a crisis out here, but it's a crisis across the entire state. Uh, Denise in Riverhead, there, there's actually a, a burgeoning market for affordable housing, though, right? You're seeing a lot of projects that are that are starting to add some housing to the market. So I was doing a little tally, and um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so th there are two zoning use districts that allow. Um, apartment buildings, multifamily housing, uh, multi-story multifamily housing. And um, that's one is along Main Street that was actually adopted uh, in like 2007. It, ca it came out of the 2003 master plan. Um, and uh, it only really just started being activated with uh, proposals in recent years. And um, in, in that district, there are already um, 512 new units either built, approved, or under review. Um, and that's along, along East Main Street. Um, and in, in um, last January, January 21, um, the town board adopted um, an overlay district that uh, is in the area of, it, it, it's in within the, uh, Railroad Avenue urban renewal area that was put in place in 1997. And um, that's like in the area around the railroad station, which is a long blighted, messy area. Um, and um, that allows for high density development. And within that re urban renewal area overlay district uh, in the last week came to light um, two different um, apartment pro proposals with another a total of 388 um wow. apartments there and the potential for additional development of apartments 
um, are, you know, is pretty great within both of those districts. Um, so, I mean, we're looking at a total of so far 900 new apartments um, in there. Wow. And, and then right across the river, um, you've got the, the village, uh, hamlet of Riverside, which is in the town of Southampton, but very, you know, it's part of downtown Riverhead. There's like no escaping that really. I mean, it's foolhardy to not see it that way, but somehow that's not really considered. Um, anyway, Riverside, uh, the town of Southampton adopted an overlay district for Riverside in 2017 that uh, would allow about, I think, 2,000 units, apart dwelling units there. Um, and so when you look at all of those things together, um, you got to start to wonder um, how the town of Riverhead and the, uh, the Riverhead Central School District, because Riverside is in the Riverhead Central School District, is going to is going to cope with the impacts of that, mm -hmm. because there are very real impacts. I mean, obviously, school children, um, the school Riverhead Central School District is already um, bursting at the seams, unlike a lot of other school districts. This community is already the affordable housing capital, they call it, but uh, I don't know if I'd use that word, of the East End, really and truly, because you know these new apartment buildings may be a, a new thing, but um, in reality, there's a lot of uh, what I would call mostly substandard housing um, in, in the downtown area in particular that has been divided up into apartments and or legally or illegally, and um, there's a lot of rental units in, in the downtown area. Um, we already have uh, a number of um, mobile home communities that are affordable, um, other, a couple of other like garden apartment complexes. Um, and it's so, you know, they, they did an assessment of affordable housing in the town and said, oh, you know, we have enough affordable housing already, but maybe we should have another 500, which I, I don't even understand. But um, you know, that's the reality already. And Riverhead officials who keep, you know, passing these codes and approving these things also seem to resent the fact that Riverhead is the, you know, affordable housing source for the whole East End. Um, but, but at the same time, Denise, Riverhead, you know, Riverhead you know, has been able to, to have projects actually move forward and they're getting built where Southampton and East Hampton towns continue to have these conversations, but there's nothing new being built. What's the difference? Is it as simple as the value of the property being, you know, coming into play? What, what's the difference? Why is Riverhead able to get these projects done? Well, I mean, there is certainly a, a property value issue. I mean, right. you know, you just look at the CPF totals, the community preservation fund totals, and you see, you know, where that comes into play. But it's also zoning. I mean, it's a zoning that the, the town board has adopted that allows it. I mean, you know, the, the property values can be as low as you want, but without zoning to enable these things to be built, you can't build them. And I, you know, Denise, I don't, the, 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 uh, the railroad Avenue area, is that it within the sewer district? Uh, yes. So, so, so I think, and that, so, well, that's the other so, thing. We so have, that plays into it a little water. too that we have public water and we have a sewer district and a sewage treatment plant. But, you know, again, their capacity is not limitless, you know? Right. So, I mean, and that's the thing, all the, the, the strain that these things are going to put on, um, you know, not only the school district, but infrastructure in the town, the town's infrastructure, um, putting aside the Riverside community, but, you know, 
water capacity, uh, the capacity to pump and, and serve the water, the, the mains that are in the street, the water district's pretty old and there's a lot of, you know, kind of ancient uh, mains and stuff. There, the sewer plant, although it's just been upgraded, the state of the art and, you know, it's a wonderful thing. It doesn't have limitless capacity. It's going to have to be expanded. So, um, you know, and then there are the other things like, I mean, you know, every one of these rental units is going to have to be inspected by the fire marshal's office, right? Every two years. Um, and we have like three fire marshals and they have a lot of other things to do as well. Um, oh, and it, how it, are they puts gonna, a, it puts a strain on, on, on the fire departments, on the ambulance, the fire on, department, on the hospital. The volunteer fire department, the ambulance corps. The hospital, the police. I mean, you yeah. know, when when you grow a community like this, right? You have Quickly. to grow the support services and the infrastructure. And so, I don't feel like we've really been seeing that piece of it happen in Riverhead to uh-huh. keep keep up with, you know, the growth in population that the zoning is encouraging. So, Michael, we we've talked about affordable housing and the need for it all the time, and we're going to continue having that conversation. I'm sure moving forward. And and it's interesting because the governor's proposal being pulled, not having a lot of support, I think has to do with maybe painting with too broad of a brush and not realizing that, especially when you get to the, to the East end, there are very different needs in the very different communities. But I wonder, you know, Denise is talking about projects with several hundred units coming in, and that will actually make a, make a big difference as far as providing some affordable housing into a void where it's really needed. I can't see any project like that getting approval in East Hampton or Southampton town right now. Can you? No, it seems overwhelming. Affordable housing also from listening to this conversation and thinking it through is very expensive, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's an irony. It's, it's, it's a very challenging situation. I find it overwhelming. I don't see uh, an answer. I do see evidence of it every day. It's the dead of winter. We have about half as many people out here this winter living out here as we did last year. However, the trade parade traffic is still heavy. And why? Because it, the, the trade parade traffic has been a problem for three decades. But exponentially, it has, it has grown that the number of people that work out here don't live here. So on Wednesday night, in the dead of winter, on a February Wednesday, I'm leaving Bridgehampton at about a quarter to six, and I don't get home to my uh, house in Shinnecock until seven fifteen. I don't know what happened, but it, it was it was it was it was state workers working on Sunrise Highway apparently um, during during the day on on both sides, north north and south, and. Um, I, I mean, we could debate the logic of of having state workers work on on you know one of one of two east west roadways on on the South Fork. Um, well, that was an look, issue that the work that, has to get done. I understand that, yeah. but but maybe uh, maybe they need to figure out better times to do that. It's, well, it's better to do it in February than than July, obviously. Yeah, it's but you saw the same traffic jam where where traffic was just at a standstill <laughs> in Southampton Village. So, so there, has, there has to be a second thought there. Do it overnight or something. I feel you know, like the state, county, and local officials need to get on the same page with understanding that there are a couple of hours a day where you just cannot mess up that corridor. Right. That corridor has to stay clear. And I don't know why that's so hard for everybody. It's just, it's that, it's just that butterfly f- effect. You, you slow down traffic by five miles an hour and you just create this tremendous traffic jam across the entire South Fork. It's just, it's just crazy. 
I mean, the number back, to, back to the affordable housing, though, and the governor's proposal. I you know, look, I understand there's issues there. There's there's issues with, you know, with with county health departments and, and with local control and, and, and all that. But it, and and I'll preface this by saying that that, you know, Fred Thiel's affordable housing fund, which which hopefully we'll we'll see. Um, you know, approved by the towns, most of the towns, some of the towns, Denise, um, you know, next year will will make a difference. But 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 I, I applaud the governor for coming in and saying, you know, if you local guys aren't going to take care of this affordable housing crisis, maybe the state needs to step in and and try some programs and, and some proposals, too. And, and I understand one one size does not fit all. Because um, I see Denise, you know, smirking a little bit there, but, um, but, but I, I, I applaud that effort, and and so hopefully those conversations will continue. And I know that there's a similar bill still before the state legislature, and maybe they can come up with something that's that's workable for for everybody. But local control, saying we need local control when when local officials don't seem to be addressing the the issue head on or or not not significantly anyway i i believe that every local official wants to create affordable housing but nobody can seem to find the way so maybe the state does need to step in and say you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to provide more affordable housing except in really I mean, i'm not i'm not thoroughly convinced that every local official wants to provide affordable housing quite honestly i mean i feel like you know a, a big chunk of their constituency uh, doesn't want it because that's not why they bought second homes or weekend homes or that's whatever, uh, you know, in the Tony sections of the South Fork and and the North Fork now. I mean, you know, and so I think it suits them just fine that other towns, whether Riverhead or Brookhaven, are, you know, the place where people who work for them um, live. And I think the only time it becomes a crisis in their minds is when it comes down to um, not having people who uh, can serve on their volunteer fire departments, for example. Uh, you know, then what are we going to do? Then we're going to have to pay firefighters and we're going to have a, you know, we're going to have a paid fire department. And that's very expensive. Um, but they may opt for that rather than have affordable. And can we also just say, I mean, I think this needs to be said. Yes, we know there are people who live here who, uh, you know, live in these in these areas who have uh, adult children still living with them who would like them to be able to move out. Um, but, you know, there's also a racial undertone to this, yeah. folks. I mean, I think that we need to, you know, apropos of the discussion we were having earlier, we really need to acknowledge and address that because, you know, it's um, single family um, zoning, right? Single family residential zoning has been used historically to uh, keep people of color out of neighborhoods and on the island. And it's still used that way, frankly. Um, it's exclusionary. And I think that we need to confront that with affordable housing in the communities so that the people who work for the other people who live there can also live there. Yeah. You are inviting into live into your community, people of color. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's something that a lot of people who enjoy these Tony neighborhoods really don't necessarily want. Without question, an aspect of it. So, Brand, just, yeah. just a last word. Uh, Bill brought up the, the community housing fund, which I think is the big elephant in the room this year. Uh, the local towns 
have a chance to pass legislation that would create some money coming in uh, to try and uh, create some affordable housing in their communities. But Brian, I'm not sure uh, there's a, there are real good plans out there right now. And, and I think the focus has been on using existing housing and coming up with programs that would make existing housing affordable for young families or young professionals. But new construction is probably going to have to be an aspect of this, would you say? Um, I sure haven't heard any concrete plans for, for that funding um, personally. Right. Um, but I, I do think that uh, development is something that's going to have to be a discussion. And I think it already is a discussion in some ways. Um, like, for instance, in Southhold, there's uh, several affordable housing development proposals that, that are before the town. And uh, this has been a discussion um, in front of the town board recently. For instance, Rona Smith, a local Southhold resident, just proposed a 24 unit rental, affordable rental units. Um, in Kachok. So I, I think this is going to be a discussion that's going to be going on. Sure. Yeah, and we're going to need this year, the towns need to come up with the plans that they can put before voters in order to try and get the community housing fund approved at the local level. Haven't seen any of those plans yet, but uh, with, you know, we're all fingers crossed that they're diligently working on them as we speak because the clock's running, no question. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists this week are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Michael Mackey from WLIWFM, and Brian Letta from the Times Review Media Group. And um, Denise, I wanted to, to take it a little bit more international. You know, anytime there's a, a big international story, um, it, we're reminded just of how diverse the community is on the East End. And it turns out that there is a very large Ukrainian population in Riverhead, right? And they're watching the headlines very closely. Riverhead and across the North Fork too, I believe. Um, and yes, they are. Um, so in Riverhead, there's uh, St. John the Baptist Ukrainian Catholic Church. And um, it's one of a few, only a handful, as I understand it, Ukrainian uh, Catholic churches on the island. Um, and uh, it's been in Riverhead a, a long time. Um, and yes, like they are very, very um, anxious about what's, what's happening in Ukraine. Um, they, you know, just as they were in 2014 when Russia uh, annexed, uh, invaded and annexed Crimea, um, they're on, they're on um, eggshells. They're, you know, a lot of people have relatives there the pastor of the church has his parents live there um his father it is in has joined a militia his father who's an elderly in mm. his late he's in his late 60s um and um you know he actually joined a militia and his mother can't uh handle a, a weapon so she's cooking for the militia you know i mean they're preparing for this and and so, of course, the folks here are really on, uh, you know, on eggshells. And, you know, uh, they spoke with um, Alec Lewis um, this week about what they're going through and what, you know, vigil they're holding. They're holding prayer services, I think, daily. And um, they're they're doing a vigil and they're also planning a rally outside uh, Riverhead Town Hall um, for, you know, but praying for peace really is what they want. I mean, they're they're very much opposed to Russia's actions, and and they're just very worried about what's going to happen to their ancestral homeland. 
the tr- the trouble here is there's there's only so much you can do to help, right? The 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 yeah. the, the issue, the standoff is is really largely political in nature, at least for the moment, uh, until you know until the shots start to be fired. And of course, there have been some scattered um, exchange of of munitions uh, in some parts of the country, but I, it has to be just like you know, sitting, sitting on a, on a powder keg, uh, living in, in Ukraine right now, from, from what I've heard from some of the national reports, um, you know, people there are sort of going about their business, but there's constant pressures. There's worries about whether they'll be able to access their money. The Russian government may be sort of circulating some misinformation to scare people. There, there's all, it's going to be very tough to be uh, a Ukrainian immigrant in America and knowing that you have family back there that's having to deal with all of this. Well, I can't, I cannot imagine. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, the most we can do is offer words of, you know, support to them, I guess, at this moment, unless I, I haven't heard anything else about, you know, requests for uh, any kind of material assistance, donations of things, but, um, you know, hopefully it won't, have to come to that depending on on what happens but um i don't yeah, know i mean it, it it seems like it seems like vladimir putin is interested in sort of reestablishing some version of the soviet union yeah don't you think mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also some there are some separatist movements in parts of Ukraine that are taking advantage of this. And one of the worries is that that Putin may use that as a pretense to that those separatist movements may invite Russia in and that could spark a crisis. So, yeah, it's it's, you know, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local. I've always felt like all news is local and, and we figure out that. Every story that's out there has some local connection, especially in a community as diverse as ours. And uh, credit to you for tracking down the folks in the Ukrainian community here to comment about that. Um, I also, um, Brianna, I wanted to talk briefly about Plum Island. There was some news this week um, on that front. What What is going on with Plum? Plum Island has been sort of in limbo for so long now. What 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 is uh, What is the new proposal that's out there? Uh, So the Preserve Plum Island Coalition is basically uh, campaigning to make Plum Island a national monument. So they approached the South Hill Town Board earlier this week to ask for a letter of support. Um, They asked local legislators for support at a recent environmental roundtable. And and they're looking to preserve uh, the island on the grounds of, you know, its cultural and historic and scientific and ecological significance. throughout the country's history. And there are two sites on the island that are on the um, the National Historic Register. And there are, several, there are at least five uh, ecologically significant communities. So um, so they're, so they're using these arguments. Um, they want to approach the governor to approach the White House. I feel like the, the this is all really pretense just to keep development from happening on the island, right? That's, that's the big thing is that there's, there have been proposals over the years for major developments of Plum Island, and I, I don't it think was, the town is. It was it was it was for sale commercially for yeah. a while, but I think it, they've they've pulled back on that. And and I, I read your article, Brianne, and it it seems that now it's available for sale. First, on uh, if there was a federal agency that wanted to purchase it, then it would go to state, county, local. If um, you know, if any of those municipalities would be interested in purchasing it, but I, I think this would bypass all that and just kind of preserve it as 
as, as this, you know, landmark, right. Or monument. Um, yeah, I'm not sure totally how it would work in terms of who would own um, the yeah. island. Um, they said that there's a donor who is willing to fund the management of the island if it is preserved, which I think is significant. Uh, so there would be funding for that. Um, but yeah. Let me play devil's advocate for a second. Why not allow Plum Island to be developed? Well, I mean, you know, it would be prime property. There's no question. It would be high value property. Um, we which could put I the think, affordable housing there. It's just, it's, 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 it's affordable <laughs> You'd housing. have to build the bridge, which would be a little tricky, or have a ferry. But seriously, why, why not allow that property to be developed? What's the downside to allowing private development of Plum Island? From from what I remember, from what I, from I rem, from what I remember reading previously about it, the, the island is pretty much pristine. Um, you know, as far as as wildlife and, you know, and and plants and 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 all that. I mean, because there's been no development on on the island, um, it's just maintained this um, this beautiful natural state um, that that's, you know, obviously great for, you know, for 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 the environment. And I think you certainly if you can if you can preserve that and um, it, it, it's a good opportunity um, you know, for scientists, environmentalists to to go and look and see, you know, what the natural order of Long Island was at, at one time, you know, as, as far as as all that goes. And, and certainly you just want to kind of preserve that if that's the way it is. Right. It's absolutely gorgeous there. And and yeah, it, the, the research value uh, is tremendous. Um, you know, <clears throat> the town of Southold many years ago, adopted zoning that would really go a long way toward preserving um, the island, not in total, but in, you know, in a, in a lot, in many aspects in terms of, you know, development density. And I mean, I, I'm not sure if it came after a certain former president was inquiring about the island because uh, there was an interest in uh, hotel conference center condominiums in Gulf Wars. <laughs> They really right. contacted um, Scott Russell years ago. Yeah, the Trump organization had some interest in it, correct? Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah, but then, I, you know, I look at Robbins Island. I look at Gardner's Island. Those are privately owned uh, and they are off limits, basically, uh, to the public. Uh, you know, if that land, if if Plum Island were to be preserved, Brianne, um, there's at least the chance that you could convert it into some type of a park and create some trails and 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 really have as you said, sort of an untouched um, space. There aren't a whole lot of those left, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value to that. Um, and I think it has a lot of educational value too. Um, and it has a lot of local benefit. Like, you know, you could take kids on field trips there and say, oh, look, like untouched wilderness, you know, they, they have a lot, like they, I think it was mentioned uh, during the meeting, that's like the largest haul out area in New York for, uh, for seals. Um, there are, several hundred species of birds that that have been counted there right. um, i believe and, terns and I, I, nest there right I, I i remember hearing that from silence of the lambs <laughs> Turn, turns, turns <laughs> nest there we can let you go visit it's, it's like 600 acres right brian i mean it's it's just huge it's just a great great space yeah it's huge um and, and i also it, think there's value in preserving something for the sake of preserving it especially when it comes to um you know, the wilderness and, and, you know, climate change and, and the increasing development everywhere. I think that places like Plum Island are more and more rare. 
it's fascinating the dichotomy between the conversation we're having about the need for affordable housing and creating more density versus the, the long history we have on the east end of preserving land and reducing density. Uh, those two things are definitely in opposition to each other, but they're both part of the equation, right? We need to we need to find a balance. Uh, between the two. And, and I think the balance has, I think, thankfully tipped towards uh, preservation for a long time. And I think we're just now starting to deal with the fallout from that. We need to, we need to sort of see if we can find a way to tip the balance back a little bit. So we are out of time in trying to find that balance here on <laughs> our show, but we'll keep searching and we'll be back next week, searching some more and trying to talk. Are, are, our you, way say, out of are you saying we're unbalanced, Joe? Uh, we are, I think we're all a little unbalanced. <laughs> Some more than others. We're, we're all seeking that Zen feeling of balance and we'll, we'll keep fighting the good fight. And uh, here on Behind the Headlines, we'll be back next week to do it again. I want to thank our panelists, Denise, Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Michael Mackey of WLIWFM, and Brianne Letta of the Times Review Media Group. Thank you, guys. Thank and you. Thank, thank you to Bill Sutton, my co-host, as always. Bill, I'll see you back here next week, and we'll have another conversation. Yep. Great show today, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us on Behind the Headlines. Behind the Headlines.